Please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. Exodus 20, 17. Um, We're continuing the series, Respectable Sins, using this as an opportunity to think through sins that we don't often think about. Um, We're we're thinking about the the sins that we commit, but often aren't, like we, we recognize that God tells us not to do them, but we don't see that they're actually evil. Um, the, the, the sins that fly under the radar but don't usually come to our minds when we think about sin. And as Stephen just said in his prayer, this morning we come to our second sin, and that is the sin of discontentment. Here's a question. Are you happy with your life and how things have been going? Short term, long term, it doesn't matter. Are you happy with your life? Do, do you look around at your life and say, this is okay? I'm okay with that. Do you have peace? Do you consider your lot in life, your station in life, and say, you know, maybe not everything is going the way that I had hoped or that I had planned for my life, but that's okay. Do you, do you look at what you have and even what you don't have and say, that's God's choice? And I'm okay with whatever he gives me or withholds from me. What I'm asking in all those questions is this. Are you content? Are you content? I hope we all are. But chances are that this is not the case for all of us. uh, Maybe even for many of us. And I know that some of you um, in this congregation, by your own self-admission and asking for prayer, are not content with your life right now. But I think that maybe even for many of us, people who haven't said anything or asked for prayer, uh, maybe many of us are, are not content. And I say that because the scriptures command us over and over again to be content, whether explicitly or implicitly. So I think we can safely assume that since this is something we need to be reminded of often, it's probably something that is not often true of us. Or at least if we are content most of the time, we are still not content all of the time. You know, our culture thrives on discontentment. Most movies revolve around someone who does not like their life, even if their life, you you look at it like, that's not so bad, man. Um, They don't like their life, and they, they refuse to accept how things are, and they will not have peace. They will not have rest. They will not be satisfied until they get this thing that they're after. And that, that's the whole plot. How are they going to get it? That's a lot of movies. Uh, the, the, the entire advertising establishment thrives on discontentment. Right? Now, now, don't get me wrong. There is a righteous way to advertise. Right? We have this thing. It's a good thing. You might need it. So buy it from me. I think I make the best one. Give me your money, please. Right? Like, that's a fair way to do advertising, but that's not our advertisements. What are our advertisements in America? You must have this thing I'm selling or your life will not be complete. You cannot live a full and fulfilling life without this thing that I'm selling. So you better buy it. What are they selling? Dish soap. Right? Like, you, you've, you've seen these kinds of commercials. Uh, and this is, the, this is dominant advertising. But is that right, this, this cultural discontentment? I don't think so. Again, the Word of God tells us often to be content with what we have. It tells us to be content with our lot in life. It tells us to trust the Lord 
and leave our desires to his sovereign, good, wise, and righteous will. So discontentment is a problem. It is a sin. And we need to think about it, or, or listen, if, if we don't think about it and repent of it and be on guard against it, we will give ourselves over to discontentment and destroy ourselves. By the way, God commands you things, one, for his own glory. Second, because it's in your best interest to obey him. He's not arbitrary. He knows what's best for us, and so he commands us. You give yourself over to discontentment, you will destroy your own heart. You will destroy your own life. Discontented people have no peace. Why? Because they're always striving and struggling to get whatever it is that they want. And then guess what? I don't care what the thing is. If you're not content with your life, once you get it, even if it's not a material object and it's status or something, once you get it, I promise you, it either won't be exactly what you thought that it was and you'll be discontent with the thing itself or you'll realize that there's actually something else that you now want more. Discontented people never have peace. But God desires his people to have peace and to trust him. He desires us to be happy with his will for us and so have peace as we trust him to do what's best for us. So brothers and sisters, we're going to think about the sin of discontentment this morning. We're going to see what exactly God is forbidding us to do in our hearts. And we're going to, by God's grace, see to the bottom of discontentment. Right? Some, what I mean by that is I want us to see how it's wicked. It, it's in some way acceptable to say, all right, God, you say don't do this, so that's good enough. But we need to see to the bottom of it to see why God hates things. As best we can anyway. And hopefully we'll see that, and then we're going to consider the remedy for discontentment. Now, I, I need to say a couple of things before I go any further. This sermon might be painful for some of you. And I'm not saying that like the, like the shock jock preacher, right? That's, that's not what I'm going for. I mean this pastorally. This sermon might be painful for some of you. I know that sometimes our lack of contentment is because of deep and prolonged pain. I, I know that some of you are not happy with your lives, and there is a lot of suffering involved there. So I want you to know from, from the jump that you have my pity in your suffering. And I'm not just saying that. I, I love you guys. I pray for you guys. I want to know your life. I want to help you. You have my pity in the midst of your suffering. This sermon is probably going to open some wounds. Uh, but my goal is to, with God's help, expose sin and show it for what it is in order that you might see it rightly, see God rightly, repent, and glorify the Lord in the midst of your suffering. I'm not going to compromise on anything that the book says, but what is said is not intended to be harsh, but rather to help you see. Second, I, I need to say this, because I'm, I'm sure this may come up in some of your minds as I'm preaching. Well, you don't understand. I probably don't. I just want to keep it real. I probably don't understand the depths of what you're going through. There's a good chance that I don't. I probably don't understand the pain of your situation. But I do know what the Word of God says, and it says what it says. And I'm not standing up here to tell you what I think that you need to do, and what I think, or rather how I think you need to look at your life. Rather, I am here to tell you what your God says about those things. So I pray that you, like the Thessalonians, would receive this sermon not as the word of men, but as the word of God. For, not because I'm special, 
Because when the scriptures are accurately preached, God himself is speaking to his people through the mouth of the preacher. So I pray that you would receive the preached word of God as such. And may God bless us today through the preaching of his word. And may he open our wounds in order to truly heal us and apply the balm of his grace. Now with that said, if you would and are able, please stand with me now for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. This is the 10th commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of God. Let's pray. God of all mercy, have mercy on us today and open our eyes. Help us to understand your word so that we can see things rightly as you see them. Have mercy and expose us where we're in sin. But Lord, please don't leave us there. Have even more mercy and show us your goodness and kindness to us. Show us that you are our Father through faith in Jesus Christ and that you work all things for our good. And show us the wounds of Christ where our adoption as sons was purchased. Grant us repentance, grant us reformation of life, and grant us a sight of your mercy given to us in Christ. Sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Now, why did I choose the Tenth Commandment as the starting point for this sermon? Maybe some of you are asking that. If you're asking that, it's probably because you have not read your catechism. Um, read them. Right, but why, why the Tenth Commandment? The word content is not found here. The word discontent is not found in the Tenth Commandment. So what does the command to not covet have to do with our topic today? Well, to begin, let's consider the word covet. The Hebrew word there means to desire. So we are commanded to not desire certain things. So see this real quick. God is commanding our hearts in the 10th commandment, explicitly commanding our hearts, our desires. But what is the commandment itself forbidding? The, the summary statement is found at the end of the verse. I don't know if you caught that or not. You shall not covet dot, 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 anything that is your neighbor's, anything. You are not to desire what does not belong to you. You are not to desire your neighbor's house, household, Right, it's probably what house means, his household, all of his things and people, his wife, his servants, his ox, his donkey, or anything that belongs to him. You are commanded to not desire what is not yours. You must not desire what other people have. And this relates to discontentment. Um, and by the way, I'm not alone on this one. I'm getting ready to say Thomas Boston, good Puritan, said this. I think he's right. This commandment relates to discontentment because coveting, desiring what belongs to others, presupposes discontentment presupposes discontentment in your heart you say how does that how does that work listen if someone is completely content with their lot in life they will not desire what belongs to somebody else they won't they can't if someone is at peace with what god has seen fit to give them and is also at peace with what god has seen fit to withhold from them or even take from them 
then they will not cast a longing eye at their neighbor in what belongs to him. Show me a person who is satisfied with all that they have and their station in life, and I will show you a person who is, at least at that moment, keeping the Tenth Commandment. Again, where there is contentment, there can be no coveting. So this commandment, in part, is forbidding more than this, but it is at least forbidding discontentment. Just as the Sixth Commandment forbids murder, and therefore forbids the hatred that leads to murder, as Jesus makes explicitly clear, so also the Tenth Commandment forbids coveting and the discontentment that leads to coveting. As our forefathers would often say, Negatively stated, the commandment is you shall not covet. But positively stated, the commandment is you shall be content. When God for, again, when God forbids coveting, he is commanding us to be content with our lives, with our station in life, our possessions, our family, everything that we have, and also that which we do not have. We are to be content. Now let's make some distinctions before anyone gets confused, because this this often confuses people. There are nuances that we have to recognize when it comes to desire. And I think once we recognize them, what's being forbidden in the Tenth Commandment will become clearer. First, it is not forbidden to desire things. Right? We're not Buddhists. By the way, Buddhism is self-refuting because the big goal of Buddhism is to not desire anything, which means you are desiring to not desire. Hilarious. Um, Anyway, um, it's not wrong to desire. It's okay to desire what is necessary to life. After all, hunger, what's hunger? It's the desire to be filled with food. And what does Jesus tell us to pray for? Give us this day our daily bread. Why are you praying for it? Because you want it. You want food. So we are allowed to desire what we need to live. We're also allowed to desire good things that God calls good. For a man to desire a wife is a good thing. How do I know that? What's the Proverbs 18, Proverbs 18.22? He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. It's good to want the favor of God. It is, that's a good want. Children, Psalm 127, are called a heritage from the Lord, right? A blessing from God. And it's a good desire again. It's good to desire God to bless you. So then it is good to desire children. I think you get the point. Good desires are not being forbidden in this commandment. And a desire means that you don't have something. So you're allowed to want things that you don't have. Second, it's good to be discontent about certain things. Right? It's good to not be content with your current level of spiritual growth. Right, Lord, thank you for bringing me this far, but I want more. I, I am not content with my current uh, level of holiness. Right, that's a good thing to not be content about. Um, it, it's good to not be content with your current level of knowledge of God and his word. Right, you're grateful for what you know, but you want to know God better so that you can serve him with more zeal and accuracy. That's a good desire. Uh, It's also good to be discontent with wickedness and injustice that you see in the world. How do I know that? We see it in the prophets. God opens their mouth and speaks, and they say, how long are you guys going to be evil? They're not satisfied. They're not okay with wickedness that they see. So that's a good thing uh, to be discontent about. So this may sound funny. In some instances, it is impious to not be discontent. 
Third, this commandment is also not forbidding you to try to better your life. This is where people get confused. They think also I'm not to covet, so I'm not to try to do any better in life. That's not true. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 21. There, the apostle Paul is speaking to slaves. He tells them not to worry, not to be concerned about the fact that they're slaves. That is, they should be content with their lot in life. But then he says this, same verse. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. What does that mean? It means if you're able, get out of slavery. But if you're not able, be content with your life. That's what Paul's telling them. So you're allowed to better your life. You're allowed to want to better your life. I'll give you another one. Proverbs 13.22 says this. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. That's half of the proverb. That's all I want to focus on. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Now, unless providentially hindered and made poor by God, it is a good thing for a man to save, be smart with his money, and in doing so, leave an inheritance for his grandchildren. And if you want to do that, unless you were born very wealthy, chances are you're going to need to grow your bank account through lawful means. That's not sinful means. And it's not sinful to, be want, or to want to be counted as a good man as God defines one in his word. And this is one of the ways that good men are defined. Leaving an inheritance to their grandchildren. So then, it is not intrinsically sinful to desire to grow your bank account through lawful means. It can't be. Now there are more examples we could give, but I think you see the point. It is not a violation of the Tenth Commandment to desire to better your life. It is not intrinsically sinful. It's not intrinsically sinful to desire to have more than what you have now. It can become sinful, but it is not intrinsically sinful. So in summary, it's not a sin to have desires. It's not a sin to desire what God calls good things and positions in life. And it's not a sin to try to better your life. So then what is sinful desire? What is discontentment? discontentment I think what we're left with is this discontentment is a heart posture a disposition an attitude that says I want this thing that I don't have and I will not rest I will not be content I will not be happy I will not be satisfied I will not have peace until or unless I get that thing it's not just I would like to have that Or I aspire to that. But I will not be satisfied with my life unless I get that. Contentment says, I want this thing. And if I get it, that's great. And if I don't, that's okay too. Even if it hurts me. Because I trust the Lord to give me what I should have. And withhold what I should not have. My Father knows best. That's contentment. But the discontented person will be angry, complaining, Bitter, envious, restless, sulking, frustrated, and constantly upset because they do not have what they want. And let's be clear. Discontentment is not just about money or material possessions. It it, it can be about status. I want respect. Status, reputation, a spouse, children, or many other things. As the 10th commandment says, anything that is your neighbor's. So that 
That includes but reaches beyond material things. Refusing to accept your lot in life. Refusing to gladly accept what God has given along with what he has withheld. Refusing to gladly accept the will of God for your life. That is the sin of discontentment. Brothers and sisters, there are, there are many things that happen in our lives that bring hardship. And, and many things that we desire that can become an opportunity for discontentment to rise in our hearts. So I ask, are you discontent about something? I'm not here to accuse. Are you discontent? I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw some things out there, and I'm, I'm going to get personal with you because my job is to preach to this church, not to the church down the street, and I know you guys. But again, we are often discontent because of long-term hardship that doesn't seem to have an end in sight. Are you discontent because you want children but don't have them? That's common. It's common. We even see that in the Old Testament. Give me children or I die. You yearn to be a parent. You have cried out to God. You're suffering childlessness. You want kids, but God hasn't given them to you. And you're constantly grieved. You have no peace. You're angry. You might even be envious of those with children. You don't really want to be around them. And you find yourself saying in your heart regularly, why not me? Why can't I have them? Why do others get them and not me? And then this one, why do people who don't love their kids have them? But I can't and I would love them. You have my sympathy. Are you discontent? Are you, are you discontent because you want a wife and you don't have one? Now you, you want a companion for life. You want someone to, to wake up with. But God hasn't given one. And, and you, you find yourself restless and, and mourning every day with no peace saying, that is all that I want. Why not me? Why is this unbeliever down the street on his fourth spouse and I can't have one? Or you have a spouse, but he or she acts terribly and does not treat you right. And you are convinced that there is no fullness of life for you unless they change. Are you discontent because of your job? Or your spouse's job? Now, your family is not able to be together as often as you'd like. And though that is a hardship, you are always sad and you find yourself bitter towards others maybe looking at the lives of other people and saying I have to have that or, or maybe you're having to care for your elderly parents and it is a thankless job and you think to yourself regularly why couldn't I have other parents why can't I have this other person's parents and, and why do I have to do this job and I get no thanks for it and you're angry all the time, and then you're sad because you're angry, and you're weary, and you just want out. Or maybe you have a health problem. You're getting older. Your body is breaking down. Or maybe you've had a health problem from birth, and you look at healthy people, and you wish that, you were, that your life was different, and you envy them. Or, or maybe it seems on the material level, everyone has things that you don't. 
and you're sick of working at your low-paying job and you just want to live the good life and be able to do and get what everyone else has. And why not me? Why am I stuck here? The list could go on, but know this, you're discontent. In your heart, you have determined that the only way to be satisfied, the only way to be glad, the only way to have peace is to get the thing that you want. But listen, maybe you say, well, you know, I'm pretty satisfied with my life. Like big picture, you're like, no, my life, I like it. Cool, praise God. Uh, Discontentment does not have to be long-term. It can be very short-term. We usually call it frustration. I know there's some fine nuances we could make between frustration and discontentment, but I do think frustration is usually short-term discontentment. Right? Something happens in your day and makes the day harder. It might be a small trial, but now your life is harder even if it's just for a few hours. Maybe it's an increased workload. Uh, you wake up, as I did on Tuesday, to a, a sick wife and kid. Right? I did not expect to have to deal with this. Or maybe it's even the weather but you're upset and angry and are determined that the only peace you'll have will come after the obstacle is out of your way. And so what do you do? You sulk and you pout and you let it ruin your day. That is also discontentment. It's just discontentment with your day. Maybe not your whole life, but your day. It may only be one day or even a few hours, but you're longing for your life to be different. What do you want? You want a life like your neighbor, whoever that neighbor might be with a really easy life. That's what you're wanting. And you won't be content until things are back to normal for you. Now, maybe nothing's going off in your head right now. And you're like, man, I don't think that I'm I'm doing that. Praise God. I hope that's the case. I hope you're a content person. Uh, But but let me give you some symptoms of discontentment real quick and help you look into your own heart, maybe. Or put you on guard for it. Some diagnostic questions. Are you angry all the time? Are you bitter? Are you a complainer? Let me say that one again. Are you a complainer? Do you have a hard time being happy for others when they get the thing that you want? Do you pout about your life? Obviously not in public because we're too mature to do that. Do you pout in private about your life? Are you unthankful? Let me put it this way. How often do you give thanks to God? Discontented people are rarely thankful for anything. Are your thoughts almost exclusively on something you don't have instead of being grateful for what you do have? If the answer is yes to these things, then you're probably discontent about something. And I leave it to the Lord to help you think through that. Brothers and sisters, What comes next may be painful for some of you, but you must see discontentment rightly or you will never repent. So here's where the the stab comes in the sermon. If you are discontent, you probably think that your problem is with a situation or a lack, right? That, That the issue is your life. That's not true. If you're discontent, your problem is with God. Your complaint is against God. Your anger is toward God. You are unthankful to God. You are bitter against God. 
you are scowling at the will of God and you are sinfully questioning God himself. How do you know that, Dave? Because God's sovereign. Because God is sovereign. And he is the one who has decreed every single thing in your life. He has determined everything that you have and he has determined everything that you lack. As I taught in the catechism a week or last month, he governs your life, your entire life by his providence. So every hardship you endure comes from his will. And hear me, every unfulfilled desire you have is unfulfilled ultimately because God isn't giving you the thing you desire. For if he willed you to have it, you would have it. But since you do not have it, you must conclude it is not his will for you to have it. Or at least not yet. So then, who's your problem with? It's with him. You are wrangling with and accusing God in your heart. Right? This, is a, like, this is a reformed church, right? Um, so the, the vast majority of us have a good understanding of the sovereignty of God. Maybe not all of you, but we're going to pick you off one at a time. We're going to figure it out. We have a pretty good understanding of the sovereignty of God, right? We have a tulip on our church sign, right? There it is. We openly declare God is sovereign over salvation. He chose those who would be saved. He chose who would not be saved. He chooses who lives and who dies, right? He, he chooses when we live, when we die, right? We easily affirm that God is sovereign over the big ticket items. And listen, we even affirm with our lips that God controls even the smallest things in our lives. We love to share the quotes on social media about not one mote of dust in the sunbeam does anything that God doesn't want it to do, right? It's all under his control, right on. But then when it comes to the ground level and our desires for our lives, we forget that God rules over every aspect of our entire life. That's what we forget. So then if we complain about anything, if we refuse to gladly accept anything about our lives, we are rebelling against the will of God and crying foul against our maker. Your issue is not with your life. Your issue is not with what you don't have. Your issue is not with your hardships. Your issue is with God and his holy will for you. And that is who and what you're rebelling against when you're not content. I want you to see, I want you to see what you're doing in your heart when you are not content with your lot in life. I, I have four or five things here. I want you to see, I want you to see this, the sinfulness of this sin. First, you are challenging God's right to govern you. And by the way, I need to, I need to clarify this. I'm not pointing my, I preached this to me as I wrote it. So this is for me just as much as it's for you. But I want to put it in you because there's no safety in the we. This is about you and the Lord. You are challenging God's right to govern you. You are discontent because at root, you don't believe that God has the right to withhold or take what you want and make you undergo the trial that you're in. What you're saying when you're discontent is, who is he to do this to me? Who is he to keep this thing from me? Second, you are denying the wisdom of God. You're not content because you think you know best what you need. 
and what will be the greatest good for your life. You're functionally saying, I know better than God what I need and when I need it. And that's why you're upset. That's basically saying that God is stupid. Well, how do I get there? Because only a stupid being would not be smart enough to see what you can so clearly see that you need. Third, you are denying the righteousness of God. How am I? What? By being discontent, you believe that you deserve your life to be different than what it is. Or you don't deserve to have to suffer as you're suffering. So hear the logic. Hear the logic here. If you aren't getting what you truly deserve, something that is owed to you, or if you are suffering what you should not have to suffer, then God is unrighteous to deal with you as he is. Why? Because he owes you something and he's not paying up. That is unrighteous. Or he's making you suffer and you don't deserve it. What what would we call that if anyone else did it? Unrighteous. You are accusing God of wronging you. You're accusing him of injustice. Let's, Let's put it as plainly as we can. You are accusing God of sin. Fourth, you are denying the goodness and love of God. When you're discontent, you, you, you believe that it would truly be best for you to have this thing. This is truly what would be good for me. For me to have this or for me to not have to suffer. And so the conclusion, I think, is that God is not good and doesn't love you. And that's why he's not doing good for you right now, as you have defined it. Right? He, he must not love you. Because love does good to the one loved. And God is not doing good for you right now or he'd give you the thing that you want. You're denying his love and his goodness. And fifth, this is kind of a summary thing, you are in a weird way trying to make yourself God. You are trying to rule over your own life instead of submitting yourself to the true God. Like your father Adam, you are attempting to take your life into your hands and make it what you will instead of submitting to the will of the Almighty. This is the idolatry of self. You are attempting to deify yourself by refusing to gladly submit to God's will and instead trying to forge your own will for your life. Brothers and sisters, in light of these things, Is it any surprise that God hates discontentment, forbids it in the 10th commandment, and sends unrepentant sinners to hell because of it? Is there any surprise? I think we don't often think about it like that. I don't think there's any surprise there. This is a horrible sin against the Lord, and it's much worse than we think. But what is surprising is that we don't usually think about it like this. We don't often lay our discontentment bare and see how we're sinning against God by refusing to accept his will for our lives. And so with the authority of the word of God, I tell you, you must repent of your discontentment. And I say that not trying to be harsh, but because I love you. You must repent of this. But but listen, before, before I can get to the next part, 
of, of, of how are we going to fight this sin? How are we going to be on guard for it? That's important. You must repent first before we can begin to deal with sin. You must own it before the Lord, acknowledge it, confess it to Him, own it in all of its wickedness, and seek forgiveness from Him. You don't do that first, there is no fighting it, because you don't see the problem. You must repent. Admit that you have fought against Him in your heart. Admit that you have accused Him of horrible things while attempting to raise yourself to His level of authority. And as I always like to tell you, it's my privilege to tell you, look to Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Look to the one who has died for your discontentment and rebellion. Look to Christ who has suffered divine justice on your behalf and has taken God's wrath in your place as if he had been discontent. There is always forgiveness in Christ. But you must repent. You must turn from the sin in your heart. Resolve to be content. Resolve now. Lord, with your help, I will be content. Resolve now to accept his will. And repent. But now it's assuming then that you, you see your sin and that you repent of it. We must learn to fight it. We have to learn how to fight discontentment when it rises up in our hearts. But how do we do that? Now there's the question. How, how, do, I, how do I do this? Well, know this. And I think this is good. Bare resignation is not the remedy. There's a way that the Puritans would talk about resign yourself to the will of God, and that's a good thing, right? But we misunderstand that, I think. Bare resignation is not the remedy. Here's what I'm defining a bare resignation as. Well, right, and here's an example. I don't do, I'm not doing a real definition. Uh, well, I, I can't change my life. I can't change how it is. And being upset's not going to fix it, so I'm just going to shut up and deal with it and get on with life. That's not contentment. It's not. That's usually what we do. That's bare resignation. And that may sound smart to some degree, but discontentment is still there. Furthermore, bare resignation is something that unbelievers can and do when they realize that they can't change their lives. There are false religions based on bare resignation. Don't let it bother you, man. You can't change it. Just move on. But we're after contentment. To be content is to obey the 10th commandment after all, and those who belong to God actually want to obey him. So we have to push through bare resignation to acceptance. Acceptance. Our, our goal is contentment. That is glad acceptance of God's will for our lives. But how do we get there? I'm convinced we have to begin with who God is. And we have to resolve ahead of time to believe that God is who he is. You don't do this, you won't be content. You have to resolve to believe that he is who he is. Now the word of God is jam-packed with references to the fact that God is infinite and unchangeable in his wisdom, righteousness, and goodness. And that he is in control of every aspect of our lives. Search those things out in your Bibles. Seek an elder or another mature Christian to help guide you and look for them and listen for them in your regular reading and hearing of the word. But you must determine in your heart by God's grace and with much prayer to believe that God is all that he says he is. 
So I'm not going to give you all the scripture proof, so I'm just going to declare these things so you can challenge me on them later if you think that I'm wrong. We'll have a good time. We must first get it into our blood that God has authority over us. We rebel against his authority when we're not content. We have to get it into our blood. He has authority. He is the potter. I am the clay. I have no right to challenge his authority. We have to learn our place. We don't like that phrase. Know your place, right? That's a big slam. No, that's actually pious in a biblical sense. Know your place, creature. Know your place. You say, well, what is my place? Well, we could get specific on some stuff, but at minimum, it's this. It's under him. It's under him. We must know our place. By looking to and believing his word, we must humble ourselves and say, you are God, I am not. And you are free and right to do whatever you will with me. I'm subject to you. You're not subject to me. We have to go there. We must believe also that God is all wise. That the one who orchestrated this universe and governs it and has made it all work together in harmony knows better than we do about what we need. That the one who has, I, I love this, that the one who has never learned and has never asked for advice because he doesn't need it knows better than we do what we need or do not need in our lives. We, we must submit ourselves to his wisdom and say, Lord, you know better than I. I don't understand why you do everything that you do. You can say that. That's fair. I don't understand why you won't give me this. But I know that you're wiser than I am. So rule over me. I can trust you. And we must also believe that God is truly righteous. Oh, this is big. That he cannot wrong me. That whatever he's withholding from me is not wronging me. Because he cannot do wrong. This also means to some degree you need to know yourself. What do you deserve? Hell. So anything that he gives you that's not hell is actually mercy. And listen, we use that pious language all the time, don't we? I'm just a sinner. I don't deserve anything from God. Yeah, but if you're discontent, you don't believe a word of that. We have to recognize he doesn't wrong us. He doesn't wrong us. From his own nature and also from our relationship to him as sinners. He certainly does not wrong us. We have to believe that he's holy. He's righteous. We must believe also that God is good and that he loves us. That he's full of kindness toward us, especially as his people in Christ. And that he loves us with an unfailing love that is determined to do us good in the midst of all things. And that's where we're going to hang out here for the rest of this sermon. We have to believe that God is good and that he loves us. That's how we're going to be content. He is infinitely and unchangeably sovereign, wise, righteous, good, and he loves us. I know this is, you're like, well, this is what you said last week. Yeah, I know, and I don't care. We need to hear this again. We need to get this one deep in our hearts. It is because that God is all of those things, sovereign, wise, righteous, good. 
It's because He is all of those things and loves us deeply that we can be content in all circumstances of life, no matter what we might lack. Know this. God loves you. Let me, let me put the gospel in, in some really like stark, like I'm, I want to hit you in the face with this. He hung his son upon a tree, laid your sins on his shoulders, poured out the fullness of his wrath upon him, and crushed him to death for you. He, he loves you. He crushed his son to death in your place so that you would not be crushed under his wrath. Why? Because he loves you. Because he loves you. So that you would have the greatest good of your eternity done to you. He gave his son for you. Do not doubt his love for you. Believe it. Don't listen to your feelings. You're a liar more often than you think you are. Don't listen to your feelings. Rather, listen to the suffering servant on the cross cry out, it is finished, and know that God loves you. Let His voice echo in your ears when you begin to be tempted to think that God doesn't love you, and that's why He's withholding you. Here, it is finished, cry through your head, and know He loves you. I'm going to take a hard left here, but I'm going to bring it back. By the blood of Christ, through faith in Him, you have been saved from your sins and turned from enemies of God into God's beloved children. And, and every blessing from God comes to His children through Jesus Christ. Right? It's Ephesians 1. And they come through Christ because Christ purchased the blessing of God for us at the cross. Maybe you never considered it that way, but that's how it works. Christ purchased God's blessing for you at the cross. He died to make you a child of God, and then he and also in that, he died to procure God's blessings for you, one of them being a, being a child of God. I remind you of this that Christ has purchased blessings for you at, at the cross because there is a promise or a blessing from God to his people that I'm about to read. But before we get there, I want to ask you this. Do you think that a promise Christ purchased for you with his own blood will not be kept? Let me ask it again. Do you think that a promise Christ purchased for you with his own blood will not be kept? Of course it will. Of course it will be kept. He did not shed his blood in vain. God does not despise the blood of Christ, but counts it as precious beyond all measure. So then, God will keep every promise to you for Christ's sake. For Christ bought the promises for you at the cross. And here is the promise. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28 Don't roll your eyes at that and say, oh, I've heard that a million times. It's on bumper stickers. This is the word of God. This is a promise of God. 
Here's your medicine for a discontented heart. There are other remedies that we could apply from the word, but I think this one stands very tall. This one stands very tall. God makes you this promise because you are his child and he loves you. The promises are blessings of the gospel. So this is actually part of the good news for us, by the way. God is our father through Christ, and because of that, he works all things for our good. That's good news. This promise is for those who love God. So Christian, that's you. If you trust Christ to save you, I know that you love him. Not perfectly, not as much as you should, not as much as you could, but you do sincerely love God if you trust Christ to save you. I know that. So this promise, to those who love God, this promise is yours in Christ. And the promise is, all things work together for good. Do you think that that's a coincidence? Like just cosmically, somehow, if you're a Christian, all things work together? No, God stands behind this, for he is sovereign, working all things for your good. And he promises you that all things, all things, work together for your good. You know what the Greek actually means there for all things? It means all things. All things work together for your good. Your childlessness, your singleness, your your bad marriage to an unbeliever, the job you're in that you don't like, the schedule you have that keeps you from your family, lack of money, whatever it is, all things work together for good. Not just, the, not just the happy things. Not just when you get the thing that you desire, but the text says all things, even your pain, even the difficulties of life, it all works together for your good. And this good is your ultimate good. It's your greatest good. Your sanctification, your growth in grace, your growth in holiness, your reliance upon Christ, your character is being developed steadfastness is being produced in you confidence that god will care for you is growing you're 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 learning to to look away from this world into a better world that is to come You're, you're learning to find sweetness and goodness and kindness in christ and not the things or people or status of this world in all things he is growing you in all things he is preparing you for heaven in all things he's teaching you to look to him in all things he's teaching you to value christ in all things he is doing some kind of good for you nothing in your life is an accident nothing is a mistake nothing is random random is the word of the atheist we do not have that language not one thing you have or don't have is an accident Not one trial is purposeless. God is at work doing you good in all things. And listen, I want to be clear. That does not mean that I know exactly what the good is that God is doing in your life. I have no idea. But I do know what he has said. I do know what he said. And he has said clearly with a heart full of love for you that all things work together for your good. So, so how do you know that your situation is for your good? Because God, who cannot lie, has promised. And Christ has purchased the, that, that promise for you by His blood, and God will not despise the blood of His only begotten Son. And God loves you in Christ, for you have been united to Christ by faith. And when God looks at you, He sees His Son, whom He loves. So for three solid reasons all of which are equally true. We know that God must be doing you good in all your circumstances. 
But here's the million dollar question. Will you believe him? Will you take him at his word? Will you believe that he is who he says he is? Will you believe that he has the right to do with you as he sees fit? Will you believe that he is wise? Will you believe that he's righteous? Will you believe that he's good? Will you believe that he loves you? Will you believe that even if you don't see how, he is doing you good? You know what the the main question of our religion is? Will you believe God? That's the gospel. God did this in Christ. Do you believe him? That's what all of this comes down to, even in our sanctification. Do you believe this? If you believe him and anchor yourself down in these truths, you will learn contentment. You will. I promise. You will. You will learn how to say, God, hear this, by the way. I've been praying this many times. You will learn how to say, God, this is not what I wanted for my life. But you know better than I. And you love me. And this is somehow for my good. I don't need to see how it's for my good because I know that I can trust you to keep your word to me. Brothers and sisters, that is contentment. And it only comes by faith. It only comes by believing that God is for you and will do all that he promises you in Christ. The promise is yours. Take it. Take it. Christ bought it for you. So then we've seen the sin. We've seen that it's in us. We've seen its blackness and its wretchedness and we've seen how to fight it. The the road ahead will be difficult in the fight against discontentment. It will. So let me end this sermon with some good news for sinners. Though our discontentment is a horrible sin against God, those sins will not stand against the one who trusts in Christ. Christ has lived, Christ has died, and Christ is risen. He has been perfectly content in your place to satisfy the righteous requirement of God's law. He has died to satisfy the requirement of divine justice. And he is alive forevermore as your surety and proof that those who trust in him will never fall under the wrath of God. God calls us to repent again, look to Christ again, and begin to trust him with our lives and our wants. But he doesn't cast us out. He loves us. We are his children through faith in Christ. And we are his children forever by grace. So brothers and sisters, let me end by telling you this. He loves you. He loves you. He is patient with you. He forgives you for Christ's sake. He loves you. So trust Him with your life. Surely if He loves you this much, you can trust Him with your wants. May God give us grace and faith to do so. Amen. Our great God, thank You for Your Word. I pray that it's found its place in our heart and that through further meditation upon the truth that was proclaimed in this sermon, you would work contentment in our heart. Help us to see you for who you are. Help us to be content with your will. Help us to submit to you in all things. And help us to do so because we know that you love us, are for us, and have promised that you're always doing good for those who love you. Teach us, Lord, that we might glorify you even in our suffering. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
Would you please stand if you're able?